everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Today we have Drew Dudley. Drew's a, 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 an incredible leadership speaker. I've had the privilege to hear him uh, a number of times now, a good friend as well. He's an author. He, he's one of the most popular uh, TEDx speakers ever, actually, with his uh, lollipop moments talk. His book, This Is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters, <laughs> was a national bestseller in the Wall Street Journal, bestseller in the Los Angeles Times, a bestseller in the Toronto Star. Uh, it's been on the shelf next to Brene Brown. You know, it's just a a really great, um, practical, accessible uh, book on leadership. So we talk about a bit about that, but I also want to give you a heads up, too, that in this interview, we talk about suicide. Uh, and I give you a heads up about that right up front. It's an issue, of course, that's that's personal to me as somebody who's attempted suicide so many times, survived suicide attempts so many times. And I talk about it all the time myself as well, both my own experience and others. But I want to give you that heads up here because, you know, not everybody's ready to have that kind of conversation, you know, especially if you're listening to this and you're not expecting that uh, for your own self-care. If you need to skip over those parts or if you need to skip the whole episode entirely, that's totally fine. Uh, I would encourage you, however, that one of the most effective ways that we know to get through suicide, to, to get through both our own thoughts and feelings or if we're grieving somebody else, we're still trying to figure it out, uh, is to to work through it, to work on it. Um, but make sure that you have resources uh, that you know how to access. If, if you're not sure if you can do it or not, make sure you have your, your crisis line handy, your counselor's number handy, whatever it is, whatever you do, need to do to take care of yourself, please do that. Um, so with that, with that little warning, I think think it's such a really important conversation. I'm so grateful for Drew coming in and talking about that piece, but but everything that we talk about, because this is really the whole point of the show, of course, is to have those kinds of real conversations, even when they're hard, especially when they're hard, uh, because that's how we all get through it together. So with that, uh, I want to pass this over to the conversation that I had with the amazing, uh, engaging, empathetic, authentic Drew Dudley. Here he is on So-Called Normal. Uh, my name's Drew Dudley. I am a speaker and an author. Uh, that career started after I spent about a decade at the University of Toronto uh, building their leadership development program. And really since then, I've been visiting all, particularly North America, but all over the world, getting to talk about the type of leadership that I didn't see in not that I didn't see my students, but I didn't my students didn't recognize in themselves. When we start teaching really young, we give people examples of new concepts. Mm. So if, if I want you to understand something you've never heard of before, I give you examples. So when we go back and we talk about leadership, most of the examples that were given to all of us and are continuing to be given to kids are giants, right? Presidents and scientific groundbreakers, mm. and, and, and most of them are white men. Right. And so that's the formulation of leadership that got embedded in people's heads. And well, how do you challenge that then? What is leadership according to Drew Dudley? Ultimately, leadership is is recognizing this. The phrase, I'm the type of person who, is almost always followed by a lie. <laughs> and so there's this gap that forms between who we want to be and how we're actually behaving. Right. And in order to do something about that, one, you got to figure out who you want to be. And like, let's face it, when you're young, nobody asks you that question. Mm. They ask you what you want to be or uh, what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so from a really early age kids start to think, okay, I got to pay the closest attention to the things on which I'm tested. 
Right. And when you don't test people on who they want to be, what their values are, how they're going to make decisions, they don't pay attention to it. And this gap between uh, who we want to be and how we're behaving, we either ignore it or uh, justify it. Right. Like it's only temporary. And and do you think that's because people are actually answering that question? Who do you want to be with? Who do you think people expect you to be? Yeah. That's why they're not matching up. I don't think they're answering it at all. Right. Uh, That's one of the big parts is that you don't know. And so you either become unaware of the gap or you become aware of it and you lie and you say it's temporary and one day I'm going to close it. But what I found with my students was because we made leadership this big giant concept that was rich in like about rich fame and money that they didn't see themselves like that wasn't part of their identity yet because they were young. And Mm -hmm. so they, one, didn't see themselves as leaders. They didn't see the point of considering themselves leaders maybe one day. And what I realized that they never... They never got asked who they want to be. So how do you close that gap every day without even knowing where the final goal is? And so for me, leadership is doing anything, uh, consciously putting together a plan that every day you close the gap between who you want to be and how you're behaving. And because anybody can do that, every single person on the planet can do that. And when you close the gap, usually the person you want to be is a good person. Like the person you want to be doesn't suck. And so what happened was I got these students who were dynamic and brilliant and driven, not willing to call themselves leaders, completely ignoring all the leadership behaviors that they engage in. Because they don't lead people, lead organizations, things like that, make all the money. Because, yeah, we said that leadership, leadership, uh, those little things, kindness, empathy, compassion, vulnerability, we call them little things. It's the little Mm. things you do. Mm. Well, Well, think about that. And when you call something little, you diminish it. And if we call all of these powerful moments of interpersonal contact little, it just reinforces that to be leadership or to be um, to be big, it has to make you rich or famous. Mm-hmm. And so that meant that most of the leadership on the planet coming from people who don't see themselves as leaders. And that pissed me off. Like it bugged me to watch people of worth diminish themselves in front of me. Right. And so I became – what I try to do is point out to people that they're behaving as leaders every day, that most of the leadership on the planet is being ignored, and it, it's in their life. And – how to do that and and why that is, is what I like to share and what I dive into. And it really came from watching really powerful young people ignore the fact that they were engaging every day in in, in powerful moments that mattered to people. And there's these moments can be little tiny things as you became really quite famous for. Don't say little. Sorry, man. Sorry. Yes. No, thank you. Actually, I didn't even powerful it was. I didn't even hear myself. That's that's absolutely right. So they can be very simple, straightforward, um, ephemeral things. And this is something that you got uh, quite a bit of fame for talking about in in the lollipop moments story, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, what's weird is that when you uh, when you when you want to be taken seriously, it's weird when the thing that brought you to most people's attention right. is something as sophisticated as the lollipop moment. Right. And it's a TED Talk that I did where I share a, a moment where a, a girl let me know how powerful a force I'd been in her life in a moment that I didn't remember and that I wouldn't have considered significant like in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had, had a profound impact on her. And so I used to tell it when I was running this big – I was a national chair of this big charity that, that students were a part of. And they all came to a national conference and set financial goals. And if they didn't meet them, we'd never hear from them again. Mm. Like they'd, they'd hide because they thought that they'd failed. And this moment that occurred between this woman and I, it, it occurred because of how I behaved in the pursuit 
of a financial goal because the reason I talked to her this first time was I was trying to convince them to come out and do this charity on a Saturday morning back when I was a kid. And ultimately, it wasn't how much money we raised that had the biggest impact. It was how I went about it, that these Mm -hmm. moments uh, in the pursuit of your goal. It's often one of the things I want to get in people's heads is that it's not it really isn't the goals that you reach financial or physical in terms of athletics Mm -hmm. uh, or career that most matter to people. It's how you behave in the pursuit of those goals that really have an impact. And so the lollipop moment became what I told these students. I said, look, you're about to go out and try to raise money. It, that's not really the biggest impact you're going to have. Here is a story that actually impacted me uh, bec- or impacted another person who has cared enough about it to four years later tell me about it. And that is the power that you have. Mm-hmm. And when I got the chance to speak at TED, extra, TEDx Toronto, a friend of mine, I called them up, a friend of mine said, they gave me six minutes and I can't introduce myself in six minutes because <laughs> I'm still on the first damn question, right? <laughs> and, and he said, you got to tell this lollipop story. And I was like, oh, it doesn't have enough gravitas. Mm. And you know what's interesting is my buddy was like, you need to get the fuck over yourself, man. (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, that story matters. That story has impact. That story is a fundamental part of who you are. And you're not going to tell it because it doesn't make you sound smart enough. Mm. And you need to get over yourself because your whole message is that we make leadership into something bigger and complex and more important than it is. And here you are with the best opportunity you may ever have to share ideas with people, and you won't share something unless it's big and complex and sophisticated. He said, knock that off. And that's the reason I went on and told this uh, this story at TED. If anyone's wondering, it's called a lollipop moment because I, in attempting to get two uh, young kids who weren't talking to each other in line to talk, I gave one a lollipop and told him to give it to the other girl. Uh, and said, you know, uh, it, it. you should break the ice. And when she took the lollipop, I told her parents that she's taking candy from a stranger on her first day. Uh, <laughs> but it turns out that ice break led to four years of dating and then and getting married. And yeah. she told me that later on. And so th- what happened was in this unconscious, accidental moment, uh, I had maybe created the most powerful moment of leadership in my mm-hmm. life. And yet my whole life had been about, oh, what are my grades and where, how many awards have I won? That, that was the, the big moment there. Yeah. And although, you know, what's weird, this, uh, lollipop moment and, and this has been getting to me lately. And I actually reference it when I tell it now is what I did is I saw a man and a woman standing next to each other, very young, uh, awkward and, you know, frozen all rigid because they were both starting school that day and I walked up to the man gave him candy and said give this to her so you can talk to her because she's beautiful and let's take a step back 20 years later and I realized this one not even close to respectful of her personal sure, space yeah, and yeah. incredibly heteronormative. Right. And so like it worked out, obviously they end up getting married as a result of this, but I probably wouldn't do it now. Or what really bugs me is yeah. I probably would. And that is something that, that really has impacted sure. me and, and started sure. realizing that this story that I'm spreading out there that still gets circulation. I had someone text me this morning saying, uh, my girlfriend saw it in her training class. Right. Uh, but also, like, it embodies some of the real problems that we have in our society today that 20 years ago we didn't, well, us men didn't think about. Right. It's been on women's mind forever. But Yeah, but, you know, I don't, uh, and and why it got so much traction and why I think people are still talking about it is because that's not, those aren't the details that people are really paying attention to, to yeah. be perfectly honest. It's, it's the core message, which is, 
you know, that's the goal of any great speaker uh, is to try to, to get that that essence o- uh, across to people. And it, and it clearly worked. So was the was the TED Talk uh, before or after you'd been working on university campuses? <laughs> you know what? It was it was six weeks after I quit. Really? Yeah, I, <laughs> I quit and I got the call, I think, two days later, sitting in my apartment. Uh, with everything packed up, waiting for uh, like 1-800-GOT-JUNK to show up and just yeah. toss out half the stuff I owned. And that's when I got the call saying, would you, would you like to do TEDx Toronto? And I had just embarked on a new part of my career because things have been so toxic at my old job, even though I love okay. my students, yeah. that I had just broken down and was like, I can't do this anymore. Uh, ultimately, what happened is I was 300-some pounds uh, and not healthy. I was still drinking. I hated myself. And then this person came into my life that uh, kept making me feel like less than I just kept getting in the way, it seemed to me. And I actually, you know, got the thing where you're just sort of like, I quit and walk out. Right. Uh, Didn't think about it very much. Just sort of was like, I quit. (laughs) Yeah. And there's something about just cutting the cord that makes you realize that you got to do this. But I mean, there's a story um, I tell in my book that it had happened before, like in the, I left in early 2010, but in late 2009, because I was so overwhelmed, uh, like I was, I would break down in the morning before going to work. It was such a toxic environment. And I went on this train trip across Canada to just unplug. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, early on, a a seven-year-old, I had an interaction with her who made me realize, because I said to her, oh, I think, you know, I'm this type of person. And here's the thing about kids like, Wait, you just said I'm this type of person, didn't you say earlier that? Well, this is the woman who actually made me realize. This oh, woman. interesting. She was like seven. Okay. All right. Uh, I didn't want to talk to anybody. Right. Like I just wanted to disconnect. So I took that stack of textbooks or, or like workbooks you're supposed to be reading mm-hmm. on the train. And the whole idea was don't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Just dis- like decompress from the thing that was bothering me the most other human beings. <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm sitting in the car reading this like textbook and this girl busts in and sits down next to me and says, uh, you know, what are you reading? And I'm like, I don't even know who this kid is, right? But they're so straight up. And I just said, I'm reading a book for work. And she got so excited and said, you get to read books for work? Wow. Like my dad has to go to an office. Mm. And it was cool, that little moment where you think, I do get to read books for work. Yeah. I get to play with yeah. ideas. You don't have to read for work. You get to read for yeah. work. Yeah. And she said, well, what's the story? And I, I looked at the textbook and said, oh, you know what? This book doesn't really have a story. And she said, don't all books have stories? And I said, no, some just have knowledge. Mm-hmm. And she said, aren't stories knowledge? And I don't want a kid going out there in the world and I'm the guy who told her that stories aren't knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't, not that I don't like kids. <laughs> I just don't want to screw them up. Right. And I don't know how to talk to them. And I know that if I, you say something, it embeds itself. And so I said to her uh, something that a guy named James Miscalic had once said to me. He wrote a book called Six Months in Sudan. He's with Doctors Without Borders. He said, the story is the basic unit of human understanding. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at this girl and said, no, stories are knowledge. In fact, the story is the basic unit of human understanding. <laughs> and then I thought, she's seven. <laughs> <laughs> she just nodded yeah. absently. But here's the, you don't, we don't get to decide what kids understand. Right. Like yeah. they get to decide what kids understand. And she just looked and said, your friend is very smart. And I said, this is awesome. But she'd been running up and down the train. And I asked her why. And she said, my parents say I have a very big spirit. And it's too big for every room that I'm in. And if... 
my spirit's too big for rooms, it's too big for a hallway, and all a train is is a big hallway. <laughs> I said, yeah, and she goes, but any time that I am in a space not big enough for my spirit, I run because you can always choose to be free if you want to be. Mm. And she's seven, right? And the thing about a kid saying that <laughs> is, yeah, but they're not trying to be deep, right? right. And they're not trying to be impressive. Uh, there's no pretension in that. She's just like, I'm no. free if I want to be. She's just observing her experience. And, and so yeah. all those, and then to hear someone say that and realize that for years you have never thought, like you haven't thought right. that in ages that I can just be free if I choose to be. Mm. And it was such a profound moment at that point in my life. And I said to this seven-year-old, thank you for that because I've been really unhappy and you made me realize it's because I'm in rooms that aren't big enough for my spirit. I'm with people who aren't big enough for my spirit. Mm. And I'm saying this to a seven-year-old, right? We're having this bonding moment. Yeah. But she she sits, she jumps off the chair and she looks at me and says, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think anyone whose spirit is too big for their rooms would spend time reading a book without a good story. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and I said, because kids like exit a conversation yeah, whenever yeah. they damn well feel like it. Yeah. But it was that moment that I realized like, I, I'm i the type of person who uh, talks to people, gathers their stories, gathers insights, shares them with others. That was my whole identity, right? Mm. And here I was on a train for 18 days and I had, I had no plans to do any of that. And I said, okay, there is a gap between who, uh, how you're behaving and, and who you want to be. And, you know, I don't know the secret to happiness, but like a key to unhappiness is when that gap forms and then you become aware of it. Mm. And once you become aware of it, you either have to accept that you're a shit compared to who you want to be or you make a commitment to try to change it. Mm -hmm. And what happened as a result is I'm talking to all of these people on the train. I just start conversations and I learn so much. But one of them told me that she was traveling across the country to meet a guy that she met on the Internet. And this is 2010, right? Mm-hmm. So if you admit to people you're you're going to meet someone you met online, people that you're going to end up in a trunk, right? All right? <laughs> and so she goes, I know people think I'm crazy, but here's the thing. I don't know if everyone's entitled to a love story, but I want one, and I will go as far as I have to to chase it. And then she did this. <clears throat> Excuse me. How far are you willing to go for the chance to be happier? And that's one of those questions that, when you first hear it, you think, oh, yeah, that's a good question. Mm. But it's like a ninja that gets inside your head, this un- discomfort cognitive dissonance ninja. Mm. And I just – I was on the train that night and I realized I'm the type of person who would never settle. And yet I wouldn't change the toxic environment I was in because I was afraid what I'd end up with was worse than what I have. And I didn't like what I had. But like, is there any reason anyone out there isn't doing anything except they're afraid that what they'll end up with is worse than what they have? Right. And what I had wasn't that good. And so I was settling. Well, and you said at the time that, or at least when you were um, unhappy in your job, that you were overweight uh, and that you were still drinking at the time. So mm-hmm. w- did you know you were an alcoholic at that time? That is a hard question. Mm. Like, do, I don't think I knew. Um, it was... I've never been straight up asked that. Did I know at the time that I was an alcoholic? Well, because sometimes I find, and I've been privileged to talk to a lot of people about this before, where part of them knows. There's just, there's that denial or that there's that evasion. There's the excuses, whatever. I think I thought I was terrible mm. as a person. And I think that I didn't think much beyond that. And, and... 
crappy people do crappy things and that's being a drunk right and but I, I don't i don't no i'm not saying that's true. no 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 like, no no i, I realized but that that narrative that judgment on yourself yeah you know what it was like it was part of a cycle i think like you feel lousy about yourself so you drink right and then when you're drunk you want something else that feel like that that's pleasure which is food mm-hmm. and then you get fatter and you feel cr- shittier, and then you drink so you more. Drink, yeah. And so to be like, oh, I'm an alcoholic, it wasn't so much I would ever be like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, I'm a crappy person who's fat and doesn't do anything about it and gets drunk all the time. And when he's drunk, says crappy things because right. um, he gets pissed at other people for not treating him the way he wants, right? Because Oh, you know, I want to like I want to chase a love story, but all the girls I'm interested in have to do that polite like, well, no, you're great, but and mm-hmm. and can you blame people for that? Like look, it's not how people look, right? But if you're 320 pounds, it's a lot to ask someone to become physically attracted to you, right? right. Like some people do, but let's I don't want to be a dick, but No, but I understand what you mean. Yeah, and that... and I'm like I really like her and I can't blame her for being like no, I, like I like you, but I, I can't find myself attracted to you. Right. And that's not their fault. But then no. you get pissed at them, even though what you're really upset at is you and the cycle rolls. Right. Right. And so you're, you know, the bipolar at the time that I had was was unmedicated. And so. But you know, were, were you diagnosed with bipolar? I was. Okay. See, this is the yeah. problem. Like I was diagnosed in 2007, went on medication. And what happened was I then moved and didn't where I moved to, it was harder to get like I didn't have a, a doctor there. I didn't have a mm. psychiatrist there. Mm. I stopped taking the meds. And, you know, for anybody out there who loves people with mental illness and sometimes wonders why we would ever stop taking the thing that helps make us better. It's and I don't know how experienced people are with bipolar, but and I was I was bipolar, too. Mm-hmm. And. Like the hypomanic state is it's so odd because the the disease is dangerous, but on one end of it, like you can start to feel like you're never that good except when you're hypomanic. When you're mm-hmm. hypomanic, like y- you perceive yourself as funny and brilliant and let's and you you can be. Like I got a lot of stuff done in my career sure. and a lot of success in my life, I think because I had this state, this gear I could go into that no one else could go into. Mm. And so when that goes away, like in order to get to to stay away from the depression, the horrible dark side of that, mm-hmm. which you desperately want to escape, right? It's like um, trying to describe depression is uh, the way I finally got into it was like if you've ever walked through a giant spider web, mm. you know how it sort of melts into you? It clings like, all over you. And it, yeah. it's so powerful. You know it's not part of who you are, but it's almost like it sinks into you. Yeah. Like rem- imagine despair was a spider web and just wrapped that. Like that's a horrifying place to be. Mm. And when you're told that you can say goodbye to that or at least be treated for that, in my case through um, uh, mood stabilizers, you also have to say goodbye to the hypomanic version of yourself. Right. And uh, you can miss that person because yeah. you go through your life feeling as if you're never at your best. Yeah. But you have to realize that the best person you are isn't in that hypomanic state. It, it, but yeah. you feel like you've given up. There's a moment where you're like, where was that insight that I'm reaching for? I can relate to yeah. that. I mean, I, I identify as a creative type. 
uh, and when I'm on my medication, and medication works for me. I, it took me a long time to find the right one at the right dose and all that, but it works for me. Yeah. Uh, but w- one of the trade-offs is that some of my most creative and I think profound insights come when I'm in my worst places. Yeah, you know the the stuff that I can really feel deeply about. Not that the medication stops you from feeling or anything like that. I think that's partly a stigma that people face. There's it's probably something up with the dose or something, but I think it does impact that 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 there's something to be said about that really deep emotional experience, whether it's sadness or mania or, or whatever yeah. else. So how did you break out of that cycle? Was it, you know, uh, was there a re- revelation? Did it did it come gradually? How did you finally, because you're sober now, aren't you? Or, I am. Yeah. So how did that happen? You know. Uh, and you look great, by the way. So you've <laughs> obviously lost a lot of weight. Not that weight defines how you look. No, but, but I mean, it, it defines a change in lifestyle, right? right. It, it um, And it helps how you feel about yourself, right? Because, mm-hmm. and, and you know, it's tough too, because over the last year, you know, I put 25 pounds back on and that's hard to look at to, and be like, damn it, why not? Like, you know, you can do this. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you've done it before can actually be, you know, something you get angry at yourself for, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you talk about the process and, and want to make it part of your day. But you go through a year and, and you know, my dad was sick and then, uh, and you make, you let yourself make these excuses, right? And, mm-hmm. and you make, um, you don't commit to your decisions every day. But one of the things that I and I talk about this briefly in the book is that there's no reason for anything. There are reasons for everything. And so what made you sort of turn it around? One, I started liking my life more. Mm. I wasn't in a toxic environment when I did start to reach out that the TED Talk started to gain momentum. Mm. Um, at the TED Talk, there was an agency there. They were there to see Neil Pashrika of The Book of Awesome because at that mm. point it was a huge New York Times bestseller. They saw me speak you know, at 10 a.m. Neil was on at 4, but they came to the event and they grabbed me and said, you know, we'll represent you and began a, a process of you know, a, an exciting, traveling, well-paid life doing what I wanted. And all of a sudden, I really like life. And, and you start to feel like, okay, you know, there's... This is exciting to get up in the morning instead of not. Mm-hmm. I want more of this. And then yeah, you start a reason to, to get yeah. up in the morning. Yeah. But also when you start your own company, um, no more health care. No and right. no more. So, you know, I get it with my financial advisor and he says the first thing we should do is insurance you up. Excellent. And uh, I get turned down for all of it. <laughs> um, like my friend had a d- double lung and heart transplant and got life insurance and I couldn't. <laughs> like being three hundred and twenty pounds at five wow. foot whatever I was is a bigger health risk to insurance companies than having had a heart transplant. Do you think that the psychiatric diagnosis had anything to do with it too? I don't know because I was very open about that, right? And I think it it was very much the weight. And so they came back and said no. Uh, My dad got sick again with a heart problem and and heart disease is an issue in my, my family. And so that's going on. I go to give a speech in Orlando. And while I have an afternoon off, I go to Universal Studios mm-hmm. and uh, alone uh, at 30, however old, wearing like khakis and a fedora. <laughs> um, and let's tell you folks, felt fedoras in Orlando is a great idea. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wait two and a half hours in the lineup for the new Harry Potter ride. Mm-hmm. Best ride in the world, by the way. And uh, I get to the end of the line and uh, the poor kid at the end of the line has to say, I'm really sorry, sir. But the ride is not capable of accommodating your dimensions. Mm. 
and I can't, and I have to walk. That was diplomatic. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm sure they're trained on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're selling butterbeer to 400 pound people out in the in the which you are, yeah. I think you have to be trained on that. Sure. Um, but that and then I tried to go and I, when I was going to fly home, the seatbelt wouldn't do up. Right. And and that had been the case, you know, it was getting closer and it was getting closer. And then finally, I guess I flew Delta or something and the seatbelts are slightly smaller. And yeah, it, it didn't do up. And so there's this, this, this group of things that happened that made mm-hmm. me say, okay, uh, this has to stop. This is your fault. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like some people struggle with their weight and there are genuine medical reasons for that, whether it's, um, you know, glandular disorders or hormone, that's it. But I think a large percentage of us who are overweight, it is because we make bad choices. Right. All right. And and I'm not crapping on anybody. No, no, sure. But, but that was the case for you. We have saying. to boil yeah. it back down. Sure. We're making bad choices every day. And uh, I went home and I said, okay, we're, we're going to, we're not going to do it. And, and I used part of the process I do and I talk about in the book about cu- coming up with daily committed behaviors uh, to do that. I went to someone who knew better than I am and I asked, you know, what questions do I have to ask myself every day to lose 100 pounds? And uh, she said, well, she gave me some – she said, have I eaten less than 1,800 calories today? This is for me personally, by the mm-hmm. way, because anyway. mm-hmm. um, she she calculated all this. Have I burned more than 3,000 in total, which meant just being alive and right. doing some exercise? And right. when you're that big, it's really hard on your body. You actually burn a lot of calories. Sure. Um, and, you know, have I done – 15 more seconds of cardio than yesterday and you start at 15 seconds mm. and I'm like I'm not just doing 15 seconds she's like oh well go try um, <laughs> yeah 15 seconds was an eternity at 320 pounds <laughs> right. and so what she said though and this is something that really changed my life looking at a lot of things she said um, failure only destroys momentum when it's unexpected mm. so you get 65 days out of the year, when you're traveling, when you're at a banquet, when there's just no other option to not answer those questions. 65, two months worth of those failures. But if you answer those questions 300 to 365 days, you'll be 100 pounds lighter in a year. And I was 100.7 pounds lighter. And a lot, you can't use any of the, the days in the first two weeks, get your mm-hmm. body used to it. Mm-hmm. And I still had, I think, like 27 days left. <laughs> But what happened is every night I was like, okay, I want, I want to order pizza. I want like, it's just before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, if I can just go to bed now, I can have it tomorrow. I, pro- I can have it. And I meant that I'll have it tomorrow. But if I wake up tomorrow and I didn't make that decision right now, the first thing I get to think to myself is you did it yesterday. You throw that day on a pile. And once that pile, and it, it can never come off the pile. And once that pile hits 300, you've gotten where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, what really started it. I also big time, went back on the medication for the bipolar. Mm, um, mm-hmm. That was because I had a terrible incident where I got hammered and uh, at, an, like, at a speaking event, which had never happened before, okay. right? Yeah. And I had to get sent home by the organizers. Wow. And that was just devastating. Sure. Um, and I, I owe them so much because they gave me another chance the next year and we stay very closely connected. But yeah. they had every right. To, like that could have ended my career. Sure. Like I had a manic episode and started drinking. You know they're tied together. You don't know yeah. what caused the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so the 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 weight, the drinking, 
the the bipolar disorder. Um, what the the for the drinking? How did you uh, finally address that? Did it just fade away as you address these other issues, or did you join a program, or or how did yeah, you Yeah, it's the same that? thing. It sort of happened gradually. It yeah. was the last one. Right. It was the last one to go, and and uh, you know what it was. Other than that one time, I never. I was a, an odd alcoholic in that, or I didn't realize I was an alcoholic. I guess because. I didn't drink all the time. Mm-hmm. When I, it was just whenever I drank, I drank till something terrible happened. Right, and that's how I also dealt with problems. And so that I think, but I never drank before a speech, never night before a speech, because getting an hour out of people's time is like holy to me. Mm. It's the only thing you can't get back. So ultimately, I was like, okay, you just can't do that. Like you were so blessed to get this and people have trusted you with their time. And if you're a decent human being, you can't be up there at less than your best. It's mm-hmm. just, and that was so holy to me. And uh, damn it, Vegas. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of sentences end with damn it, Vegas. <laughs> but I will say this. I, I, how about the drinking? Yeah. Um, I never did it. And the problem with being an alcoholic is we keep setting new finish lines right right like tomorrow i would never do that okay like i can drink but i'll never do that and then you do it and you're like okay but i'll never do this Mm. and you know i will never drink the night before and and i got to vegas early and you know my hotel room wasn't ready so go sit at a blackjack table and then someone comes by and is like do you want a beer and it's one o'clock in the afternoon you're like well i don't speak till tomorrow till nine Mm. and anybody who who's who's you know addicted to it right now is thinking, oh no, that's not how it works. Right. Like I sat down at one and had a beer. You're not having three and then calling it a day. It was like 10 hours later and, you know, 13 right. beer that I, I go to bed, wake up in plenty of time, mildly hungover. The speech gets a standing O. There's $5,000 in cash on the dresser. That was rock bottom uh, right. for me. And I'm like, so that's you. If you hear other people's stories, it gets way worse. But that was such a wake up call that that could have been such a disaster again. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any excuse this time. I chose that. I was in a manic episode the time before, which I take accountability for that. But I do recognize that was a manic episode. This right. was a choice. And so I thought, if I allow it to happen this time, I will allow it. Um, and then I, I got a call from a friend of mine out of the blue who we'd been talking about the problem drinking. And he had said, well, you, you know, he's in the program. It saved his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called and he said, Hey, I just wanted to check on you hmm. that day. No, and I said, really? Just today, out of nowhere. He's like, yeah, I don't know why. I just, I was doing some looking. I found a meeting uh, that I think would be perfect for you in Toronto. He doesn't even live in Toronto. He'd done some work for me. Wow, he's like, yeah, I just thought I wanted to mention that to you. And uh, it just happened that day. Hmm. And again, like, I don't know what, what runs the universe, <laughs> but that seemed a little too on the nose for me. Mm. So that's kind of how that happens. It was the last one to go. Yeah. And there have been missteps along the sure, way. But sure. you, you start each day over again on a, on a day one, yeah. right? So, Well, uh, I tend to think that um, what gets me through the most difficult times in my life now is the idea that everything that I've been through to this point has been training for this moment, yeah. especially the really hard ones. So... If if you're willing to, can you talk to me a little bit about your ex-girlfriend, if if that's what uh, you still call her? Yeah, I haven't figured out the name for that yet. Yeah. Um, Anastasia, was it? Anastasia was her name. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, I Anastasia was uh, in my workshops back at the university. Hmm. Um, 
she was in the third row, fourth from the left. Uh, I remember that. I actually remember going back to my office after this because I'm I'm up front doing the workshop, and she's just uh, I think she was a senior uh, at the university. And I remember going back to my office and uh, my colleague being like, "So how was the workshop?" And I said, "We have a problem because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, because we talked afterwards and it was, and and we we connect and talk uh, throughout the course until she graduated. But I was like, that is a student. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was obviously a little bit of a spark there. And then five years went by. She graduated, and you know we lose touch and. Uh, then one day I was out racing, a buddy of mine's a professional racer and he got us to go and try out the cars. Right. Mm. And uh, I got cut off and I was so pissed off. And I like marched up to this person (laughs) in the pit after to be like, what the hell are you doing? And the helmet comes off and the hair flows down and it's like Dreamweaver starts playing. (laughs) (laughs) And she like looks at me innocently. It's like, oh, did I cut you off? Yeah. Uh, and I think I said, can I buy you a drink or a house? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the best. This is like a, a rom com in the yeah, making. it really yeah, is, yeah. and uh, and yeah, and and that was that, and and uh, I think the, you know what I've often said is that um, Anastasia changed how I I thought about love because mm. I always you know love is is, is like this sonnet, this romantic, uh, passionate whatever, and, and I started I realized what she taught me is that love is fascination, mm. like an unending relentless, sometimes infuriating fascination with another human being. You think about them all the time. You want to know what they think about everything. Um, What really shocked me is that if you'd asked me what I want out of a relationship, what was amazing is that the most powerful relationship in my life was um, one where I was given things I didn't know I needed and didn't know I wanted. Mm. And and that was was Anastasia. And... uh, you but, know, she, but she had her own struggles as well. Well, what's interesting is that uh, I really haven't told this whole story. Um, we had one patch where you know I was just hopelessly in love with this woman, and uh, but there was one break, you know, where there was um, uh, like another person for a minute, and and she went, she she told me that and and left, and uh, unfortunately that didn't work out for her, and but instead of I didn't know any of this. I, I like it was one of those things where when you hear that you're so devastated mm-hmm. um, that you just cut off all communication. And what I, I wish I didn't because what happened was um, there was this gap, but I didn't know where she'd gone, and she had been so upset by how everything had unfolded that. And I found out later she had come back to my apartment and stood in the lobby and didn't buzz up mm. for whatever reason. And instead, she decided to go overseas. Um, back to the places that she loved and to do yoga in India and, and Bali. And while she was gone, something terrible happened to her. Um, I, I never really got the details. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she came back, I was prepared for any number of feelings like anger and hurt, jealousy. I just, I wasn't prepared to like when she came around the corner for the first time in however many months to just be instantly back in love with her, right? right. Like that was not something I counted on. I was like, I want to get my pound of flesh for all the hurt I had over the last, and it didn't right. matter. It was instantly, but you know, she had, she had been assaulted well, um, um, in India and, uh, it, it changed everything. It changed the nature of our relationship and, and in many ways made it stronger. Mm. Um, because, uh, we just talked, you know, it was different, you know, that obviously has an impact on, on how you deal with men. Mm. Um, 
I can't imagine. And, and, you know, beyond knowing it happened, there was, you know, I never got more details than that. But there was just this really strong, um, different connection. And uh, but it it just I don't know what it's like to go through that. And then Trump gets elected. You know, this is in late 2016. And you just start hearing all of this, well, you know, liars. And I can't even, like, I, same, same thing happened with so many survivors of sexual assault who went through this Kavanaugh thing. And, mm. But, you know, and, and there was some illness in her family and, and it involved some, some medical bills. And I don't want to overstate it because, like, it, it's, I want to respect her family too. And I become very, very sure. tight with her twin sister. Um, but, you know, in, in January of 2017, um, she died by suicide. And, uh, you know that, and unfortunately, your twin sister and I discovered that. Um, and I think you know now you get to add PTSD to my list of uh, <laughs> list of moments. And uh, what was what's interesting is 17 days before that, we had been on a beach in Costa Rica because I knew that she was struggling. Like she was in a, a tough spot at work, um, and, and it just was trying so hard to be powerful and strong. Um, and it was overwhelming her, and I knew it was really powerful. So I was like, "Okay, I need to take her away. I need to try to protect her," which is such a, a guy thing, right? But she was just hurting so bad. I wanted to do something nice for her, and so I said, "Okay, well, like she loved beaches. She loved the sun, and she loved beaches." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to find the best, most secluded place we can go, where like she can have the beach to herself, right? I don't want a thousand people there." We found this place in Costa Rica. And on the way down there, I stopped and surprised, like in in New York, we went and saw Hamilton because that had become like our thing. Mm. Like every couple's got like a our thing, yeah, <laughs> a thing where you say things to each other and it's in the yeah. quotes and stuff. And yeah, yeah. that was Hamilton for us. And so we stopped and saw Hamilton in the last row of the theater, fourteen hundred <laughs> bucks, and we sat in the last damn row of the theater, like literally the end. The wall was behind us, and it was worth every penny. Like when she squeezed my hand when the, that show started. If you love Hamilton, you all get what I mean. Like that opening notes. If you're in the theater, you're like, yeah, we're here. I still haven't seen it. Uh, I just saw it for the eighth time. There's something wrong <laughs> with me. But honestly, it's it's how I feel closest to her. Sure. Um, because that was so important to me. So I'll go and then I'll just get devastated by the second act. But mm. I'm with her in those moments. And, you know, before, you know, on, the, on New Year's Day, we were sitting there talking about um, what we wanted to be true a year from today. And I remember asking her, what do you want to be true a year from today? And she said, uh, uh, I want I want to know that you tried everything you can to get your book published. Because to back up a bit, after she left... I didn't want to leave the house for like two right, weeks, right. and I wrote the book. Like, <laughs> the, let me give you the book is a lot of stories. Sure, so the sure. stories were in my head. Like, you know that joke you make? You're like, oh, the book is done. Yeah. I just have to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, and so in the 18 days after yeah. she left, I wrote the first draft of the book, wow. and then stuck it in a drawer, and then uh, she found it <laughs> and read it, and was really annoyed. She's like, I love this book. I stayed up all night and read it, and. Um, and so she said to me that day, I want you to promise me, uh, like, if nobody wants it, that's cool, but I want to know that you tried. And I said, okay, yeah. And 17 days later, she was gone. And so now I have to keep that promise right. Like, there's no way you can get out of that. And that's a huge part of why this book got, got chopped around. So um, that was, but it was, you know, like, sometimes I wonder if we hadn't, like, would it be different if I hadn't? If we hadn't found her, mm. like, be, uh, 
because like I actually had to cut her down, um, what happens is the person you remember gets replaced by that image. Sure. And it's still an ongoing struggle to remember her as opposed to what we found that morning because that's right. not her. Um, but that's the last image that sort of rattles around in there. And that the last two years have been a constant discovery of how that impacts you. Mm-hmm. Um, what triggers you? You know, I, I went and saw uh, A Star is Born. Oh, yes. And uh, and I there's a scene where they're on the bed as she's getting ready to go to the show. And all of a sudden it hit me, this is what's about to happen. Yeah. Like I had the same reaction. Yeah. And then... I have a negotiation with myself in the theater. And, and oh, shit, this is like, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> right. Shit, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, we can cut it out if we need it, to, yeah, but uh, um, it's been out for a while now. Yeah, I think um, then I have a negotiation with myself. Do I stay because I want to see the end of this movie because it's really good? Mm. Uh, I think I can, and who knows? Like, who knows what it's going to be, right? Like, it could be off screen, it could be, and it wasn't. But then there's this final shot that I think was crafted carefully mm. to be shot from far away from the garage with the dog mm. sitting in front, but you can see through the window. Yeah. And there's a slight rock back and forth, and it just devastated me. And so it's constantly learning what you're capable of, and like then you want to be stronger, and, and suicide is wrapped up in so many emotions because there's obviously the grief and the loss, and then there's also the the shame and the guilt, and then the anger, which you then judge yourself for having, because why are you angry at her? And uh, so it gets, and then you just have to keep navigating, like what, do you talk about it? Um, like if, if her family hears this, like are they upset with me for talking about it? And I really hope all of you are not if you do. Um, but it's constantly a navigation um, mm. moving through. And then you're like, I should be feeling better. Right, it get, it's not your emotions that you feel. I think it's how you judge yourself for having those emotions. Like I should, I should be crying more. Right, because um, I didn't. I didn't cry for like three months, and then I was driving through Idaho, on a, went from one speech to another. By the way, Idaho is beautiful, everybody. <laughs> um, and I'm listening to the Moth, the podcast, mm, yeah, yeah. and this woman. And then on comes an episode about loss, mm. and uh, and then you have to, again, you have that negotiation with yourself. Will I listen to this? Let's not, like, let's hit it head on, right? And uh, there was this woman talking about, um, she was, I think, a, a far, like a chaplain for the Forest Service. So she always was there when something terrible happened in the, the parks, the national mm-hmm. parks. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about a bunch of these experiences, and it was really wonderful. And then she said, humans have an extraordinary capacity for strength and resilience and for dealing with grief. And she said, just remembering that um, grief is just love coming face to face with its oldest enemy. Mm. And it was like, I don't know, man. It was just like, it just hit me like at that moment. And I had to turn the, like pull the car over and just lost it. But it was such a powerfully beautiful, it was just like that thing that you needed to, to like, to hear, to make sense of it all. Like mm. grief is just love coming face to face with its oldest enemy. And I thought I've never said anything that amazing in my <laughs> life. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's a constant navigation there and I miss her all the time. 
Um, and I feel for her family all that. Like she has a twin sister. Mm-hmm. Like it's her birthday next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the rest of her life, her birthday isn't something to celebrate, right? And she's such a powerful human being, uh, Sasha. Um, and she's such an inspiration. But like I'm sure she at times feels really weak too. So, you know, and, and then all of your uh, all of your defense mechanisms are gone. Mm-hmm. Like. I can't eat, right? Because I get three, 300 pounds mm-hmm. and I can't drink, um, can't do drugs. How did you cope? I mean, what, what? I went to the gym three times a day. Right. Like, <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm 40 years old at the time. That rips you apart right. eventually, right? And right. Um, I was fit as hell though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and so, so that was a challenge. And, uh, you know, and, and talking about it and what parts of it and how much is disrespectful to her. And, um, and then like being open about it. And to go back to the hate mail. Like, yeah. Tell me about that. What's okay. what's the story with the hate mail? So first I start talking about mental illness mm-hmm. publicly. And uh, part of it was I had a student who um, there was a huge change in her in her four years there. Just a huge change. And uh, I want to get to your answers because I don't want to take too much time. No, no, it's okay. But there's stories wrapped in all of these. Yeah, things. we've got lots of time. And she, like over four years, there was this dramatic change in her. And I knew something was wrong. And so I, I remember asking her, um, look, you know, tell me, like, I care about you. And, and she said, I've, I've been diagnosed with clinical depression. I said, okay, like, what does that mean? And she said, the doctor wants me to, to talk to somebody. They want me to take some meds. And I'm like, okay, are you? And she goes, I can't. I'm still on my parents' medical plan. They'll know about it. Mm-hmm. I said, well, why is that a problem? And she said, I had everything. We didn't grow up poor. We were upper middle class. They gave me everything I ever wanted. I, they pay for my tuition. And I'm telling them that I'm sad. Like, I've been given everything. And I just, I just can't. And I realized it was a big part of why I didn't tell anybody. Because in that moment, she was everything that I was afraid of. She was mm. um, afraid that it would make her look weak, that it would make her an embarrassment to the people she loved, and that it would make her unemployable. Mm. And so... I realized that, okay, I'm going to, so I told her for the first person I ever told who wasn't a close friend that I was bipolar. And her response was, I didn't know that. And I said, well, I don't advertise it. And she said, see, you're ashamed too. Why should I do what you won't? (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) damn it. (laughs) Those Um, simple moments. Yeah. And so I I said, okay, I'll I'll make you a deal. If you, if you do what the doctor tells you, I will talk about this. And uh, I did. And it was amazing. Like the number of people who were so supportive of it uh, and people like, oh, that takes courage and vulnerability. And, and OK, it does. But here's something to bear in mind for me. I try to remember. I run my own company and have financial independence and I'm a straight white man. Mm. There are the, the, the consequence, the possible consequences for me being open about this stuff are significantly lower than anybody else doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. I am this. This is always something that makes you vulnerable talking about all this, but it is safest for me. I have my own company. Uh, I have, uh, you know, uh, that financial stability, and I'm straight white. I'm a straight white guy in Canada. So like, there's not a huge risk to me talking about this, and I do recognize that. And, um, so I talked about that, and what happened was a lot of support came out because I, I think one of the things is that we we got educated into thinking the way to inspire and motivate people is when you talk. To make them say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Or, um, wow, that's amazing, right? But what I've found is that 
the greatest gift you can give other people isn't to make them say, oh, wow, I didn't know that. It's to make them say, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> and that's what happened. But the meds, I talked about the meds, right? Ultimately, what happened, I talked about how they worked for me when I went on the the, the medication. It was part of, of my recovery. Right. And I got emails about pushing antidepressants, that the blood of so many people who take their lives is on your hands because you say things like you're telling people to get on medication. Here's what this medication does. It kills people. It's tied to this. And some of them were like, you may not realize this, probably more than half. Two thirds were people genuinely concerned and saying, you might not be aware of this, but you really should stop um, pushing that. I don't push it. It is part of my recovery. But the other third, pure, like blood on your hands, nastiness. When I started, when I shared some of the things about Anastasia and I don't as much anymore in speeches because I I think I I was doing it for me. Right. What happened was that was just the most awful stuff would come in afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, especially since her soul can't be saved because of what she did. Like, how to, yeah, how to not help people who are grieving, Why? basically, an example. Like, yeah. If you believe yeah. that s- that happens, like, what benefit does it do to tell someone else after right. it happens? Right. So I don't think about doing it, um, but, like, it's not going to reverse what happened to her. You telling me that does nothing. It is an incredibly selfish, self-absorbed, bullshit move. Sorry. No, um, don't apologize. I can deal with the med stuff, but yeah, when it yeah. started coming up with her, yeah. like if you believe this is true, don't kill yourself. Okay? Don't. Good. That's what you believe? Excellent. She's gone. We can't change that with your bullshit. And like, I don't get why you'd share that. Yeah. The only thing that does is cause other people pain. Well, and especially when you, her family, uh, her friends are are moving on and or well, at least trying to. Try. Well, it's right? tough, too, because like the book's dedicated to her. Well, so this is it. So so the book um, itself uh, is a fulfillment of that promise that you made to her. It is. I mean, the book was written and it's a fulfillment of a promise I made myself. And then actually getting it out there is a fulfillment of a promise to her. What, what's I, the book called again? This is day one, a practical guide to leadership that matters. There's a there's a pivot for you, everybody right? listening. Okay, <laughs> let's, a master let's, masterful. Let, yeah, let's let's go from let's go from Drew ranting uh, that he's going to get some hate mail for uh, to pitching the book, which just makes it even more disgusting. I'm not going to no, pitch but the book, uh, but, but I actually <laughs> no, I I'm and I do want to mention the book because it is. You know, I think sometimes these leadership type books come out and there's lots of them out there. Lots of you go through the business section at any uh, bookstore and you'll see reams of them. But I didn't previously realize how personal this one was uh, to you. Uh, Certainly the content and how deep, uh, deep rooted uh, the philosophy behind the book is. Um, So if you can uh, summarize uh, the advice that you give in the book for the for the listening audience. What would you what what kind of leadership book is this? Why is it different from all those others? I think what makes it different from all these others is it's mostly written for people who don't think they're leaders. Because yeah. um, if you're going to pick up a leadership book, 
then you probably are like, oh, I have a reason to consider myself a leader. Um, and if you don't, which most people do, like who don't necessarily feel comfortable with it, they're probably not going to pick it up, which is why it's like a practical guide too. Because right. I wanted to know, we people need a place to start. Leadership's so overwhelming. You need a place to start. And the book talks about how. It talks about, one, how to figure out who you want to be by surfacing your core values because most of us have never been asked about them. So how do you figure out what your values are? It, it actually takes you through a process to do that. And then how you actually live those values every day is there's a very specific way of doing it. And it pulls from a couple of psychological effects so that you can combine conscious efforts to do something with unconscious drivers. Mm. And a big part of it is you convert your desired behaviors every day into questions because unanswered questions are a powerful driver of human behavior. If you have an unanswered question, it drives you nuts. Like think about the days before Google and you'd remember the name of some actor and you were with a friend and you couldn't remember what <laughs> it was. That? Yeah. It bugged you. Yeah. So what we do is we turn your desired behaviors into those questions. You know, for me, impact, uh, a commit, and, and you have to define what impact means or respect or, or equity. Impact is a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they're better off for having interacted with you. And instead of just going out and trying to have impact, which is very nebulous mm -hmm. and hard to keep front of mind, what happens is you embed a question, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Because one, you have to be specific in that. Mm -hmm. It's not a yes, no question. What have I done today? You have to point to something. Imagine at the end of every day, you had to earn another day on the planet. <laughs> that would change what you prioritized every day. And to earn another day on the planet, you pass the test. But you're given the questions in the morning. And in order to pass my leadership test, I have to get three out of the six questions that I've embedded in my life every morning. And the questions drive me. Either they are something I plan to answer each day or when you have an opportunity to answer them, what have I done today to move someone else closer to a goal? Mm -hmm. I may not get up in the morning, which is empowerment as a value. I may not get up in the morning with a plan for that. But if I get a call or an email or in an interaction, I all of a sudden recognize an opportunity mm -hmm. to be like, oh, this person wants to have a, a phone conversation or a coffee. I should say yes to that even though I don't have a lot of time right. because that answers my question. It's premised on the idea that you're not always in charge of what you have to do every day of your life, but you're always in charge of who you are. Mm -hmm. You have that power. But if you don't recognize that power, you stop using it. And so even when everything else in the world blows up in your face – you can still go home at the end of the day and say, I got three of my six questions or, or three of my, or two of my four questions. It gives you evidence that you are the person that you claim to be. And in the face of a lot of things failing on you, that's a powerful thing to do. Look, um, the question, why do you matter? I pose it to people in every presentation. Mm. I pose it to a student for the first time, never asked another human being when I asked him. And he said... I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. Mm. That's I guess an unacceptable answer, right? Mm. To get from someone you care about. But I, I start asking more and more people. There's a lot of us who are driven every day by this unconscious belief that I don't matter yet. That's why I'm working so hard. Mm. And that is really what the book is about. Okay. The reason we can't answer why do you matter is a couple of things. One, no one's ever asked us that. Like, how the hell can we claim what we're delivering to kids as an education when some of the most dynamic, driven, compassionate, well-educated people on the planet can't answer why do you matter? Because in our entire 20-some years we put them in the formal education system, nobody asked them that. Mm. 
How many people out there listening have ever been directly asked that question? That, I think the reason we have a hard time answering it is because we don't give ourselves obvious evidence that we do. We kind of know we do. The book is about how to actually give yourself evidence every day. And in the process of answering those questions, like my six values, if I, I want every day to, to embody impact and courage and growth and empowerment and class and self-respect. And if I get three out of those six of those questions tied to those values, I cannot deny that I was a person who created moments that were valuable to other people in this world. That's evidence that you're a leader. That was incredible. I, I love talking to him so much that uh, I think he has so much to offer, and I hope that you took a lot from it too. Um, you know, just a reminder that if if you did listen to his, some of the stuff that he said about his experience with suicide, his, his uh, both his own experiences with it, and that of his his girlfriend. Uh, you know, please do, if, if, if you're still thinking about that later, if it really affected you in a way that, that you're having difficulty getting past, access your resources. You know, if you need to call a crisis line, if you need to get in touch with your therapist or, or friends or family, whatever it is, you know, if, if you found that to be triggering, uh, please do access your resources. Triggers aren't the problem. I talk about this all the time. Triggers aren't the enemy. Uh, if, if we don't deal with them, however, uh, that can be problematic. So I hope that that's been, that was helpful for you. Uh, don't forget, if you want to continue this conversation with me or, or with each other, uh, tag me in that conversation on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. You can send me feedback as well or read more about the show at markhennick.com slash so-called normal. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access your podcasts. We're going to be just about everywhere. Uh, so please go on there, uh, subscribe, give us a rating, let us know what you think, uh, comment, share. That's uh, really important to, to continue this conversation. So thank you so much for uh, tuning in to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.